You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Brandon joining us as a co-host, and we have Robbie Martin as a guest. Hello, Robbie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you mind just telling the audience a little bit about you and how you got started and what this background was? Sure. I got started in politics kind of inadvertently. My sister, Abby Martin, was already an activist. She had started doing political activism when she was still in college. And I was more a musician at the time. I was mostly focusing on my art. And I was kind of an inspiring filmmaker as well at the time, like in my early 20s. And my friend and I had this insane idea after the Nick Berg beheading video was released to try to film a short film ourselves, making it look like we were beheading my friend in a similar fashion. And <laughs> we, made, we made this video. And, and as we were sort of setting up the, you know, the plans to make it, my friend said, well, why don't we just film it in a really low quality really shaky cam and see how close we can make it look to the original Nick Berg video. Because at the time video, you know, this was like way before ISIS. So videos released by these groups or whoever released that video, you know, managed to put out something that looked like it was like three frames a second. It was a terrible quality video and the world was super outraged about it. It launched a talking point that I heard all across the media that was sort of a new talking point an Islamophobic flavored talking point where you would hear these people chop people's heads off was sort of the new meme that came out of that early Iraq war period. This is around 2004. And so we released this video on just file sharing networks like Kazaa, Emule, some different random file sharing networks that were on. I think we even put it on Napster and some weird places like that. And we called it... (laughs) called the video American soldier beheaded in Iraq. And we didn't send it to any news networks. We didn't send it to Fox News. We didn't send it to Al Jazeera. We didn't commit any kind of actual fraud. But what happened was about two to three months later, I woke up to a phone call from my mother at nine in the morning saying, quick, turn on Fox News. Ben, my, my friend, is on TV. So I turned on Fox News and there's our video on Fox News saying that an American soldier had been beheaded in Iraq. And I was just like, oh my God, someone picked up this video and broadcast it on a news channel as a real video without doing any fact checking. This is insane. Um, (laughs) And my my friend, of course, was actually still alive. He didn't die. So all it took was an AP stringer, like someone who was working freelance who sent footage to AP to go find out where my friend lived and went and knocked on his door. And once they spoke to my friend, that's when the whole story fell apart and they had to issue all these retractions. But the most incredible thing about it was that they didn't issue AP was the one who originally put out the wire story saying an American soldier had been beheaded in Iraq and they did not retract it until about five to six hours after that initial wire story. So when you're thinking about AP, they're injected into every major news outlet in the world. So essentially, you had papers running for an entire day, print newspapers, which I still have copies of, saying that an American soldier had been beheaded in Iraq because the retraction came after the newspapers were printed. So that was kind of like a crash course for me and how bad 
the mainstream media was. You know, I had already sort of taken a pacifist position after 9-11. I was dating a Japanese citizen at the time 9-11 happened, and she had a very different take on what we should do in response, like why we shouldn't invade Afghanistan to go capture and kill one man, things like that. So I was already sort of a pacifist at the time, but it wasn't until that incident where I was completely sort of thrown headfirst into like not just media critique, but media analysis trying to figure out how much of this other stuff coming out about Iraq was propaganda. I started watching Al Jazeera more at the time. I think the big thing for me at that time was heavily seeking out alternative media sources at that time, which was a crucial time because it was kind of like the explosion of all this anti-war alternative media. Like even a website that people forget about now, like Information Clearinghouse, was like this huge resource for me at the time. I would go there every day and stuff like that. I mean, there are so many other websites. I mean, even the Guerrilla News Network was a huge sort of proto-vice kind of handheld cam, sort of hip alternative news website. And that kind of, I guess, got me interested in doing alternative media myself, which I didn't really do until I started the podcast with my sister um, many years later, Media Roots Radio. That's actually very interesting. Um, because yeah, that's an awesome prank. Holy crap. All I could think of when you were saying that was back in 2016 where Randy G-Dub tweeted out something like, I love working at the Ohio Post Office and tearing up Trump absentee ballots. Yes. And Gateway Pundit picked it up and conservative media went bananas. But this is way more elaborate. <laughs> well, the thing I kept on thinking is you are goddamn lucky you're not Muslim. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, that's the sad reality of it is I realized how... Like, I, that's sort of when I had a crash course also in my own white privilege. I was like, holy shit, if I was a Muslim person or Arab, I wasn't even a Muslim, just Arab or from one of those countries, I would be in jail right now or worse in Gitmo or like indefinitely detained somewhere else. And that's sort of when all that reality came crashing down on me of like how dangerous this is if you're a Muslim or an Arab, especially if you're practicing anti-war activism or like anti-war on terror activism. Just for the record, you were also arrested by the FBI, right? I was not arrested. They did like a bad cop, good cop sort of interrogation of me. And looking back on it, I was stupid and young and naive. And I would have retained a lawyer and made them talk to my lawyer if I had it to do over again. But yeah, they basically, I mean, it was really intense. The, the morning this all broke, that morning I was telling you about when my mom called me and said, Ben's on Fox News, the FBI called me about an hour after that. And they said, can you talk? Where This is the FBI. And I said, well, I'm actually not home right now. When can we talk? And they're like, well, we're in front of your house right now. We were hoping you could come back here and talk to us right now. Jesus. So they were like at my house within an hour of me even finding this out. And I was deeply afraid. I mean, I didn't know, wasn't you know educated in civil liberties. I didn't know what my rights were. So it could have gone a lot worse than it did. And I guess one of the main things I was smart enough at like age 23, 24 to know that one of the ways they can get you is for perjury. So my idea was I'm just going to tell, I didn't hide anything. I just told them the truth, exactly what we did and why we did it and how we didn't commit fraud. But then the weirdest part was after that, the FBI wanted to talk to me again, like months later and show them on the internet where you can download all these videos from, like actual videos released by Zarqawi's group in Iraq. And I remember thinking how bizarre it was 
that they would need to talk to me to find out this information. It seemed odd. I still don't understand what that second meeting was about, but it was really an odd experience because I sat with these FBI agents basically watching snuff videos with them on the internet, like just sitting there with them in my room while we were watching beheading videos. And it was a strange experience and they never spoke to me again after that. Wow. Actually, for our guests, I would suggest you guys go back to episode two where FBI agent Colleen Rowley talks about all the other FBI practices. He's great. That's bizarre. If they didn't know, that means they're just like really bad <laughs> at investigating. Oh. <laughs> or they have a snuff video fetish, which <laughs> what a shock from the feds. <laughs> <sighs> That was a strange, strange thing. And after that, never heard from them again. This is the interesting thing that happened is most people in the public thought we got arrested because of the way that the FBI spun it in the press. They said that it was illegal. They said they were thinking of pressing charges on us, but they never did. So if you just read those news stories and didn't talk to us or read alternate stories and try to seek out interviews with us, you would just assume that we went to jail over it. Yeah. And one more thing about the Nick Berg case is there's a lot of weird stuff. Like he was arrested by the Iraqi police and yeah, things aren't like it seems just, oh, we don't have to get into it now, but I just wanted the audience to say, no, that just Google and look at his Wikipedia. (laughs) Just one thing I want to mention about that is what is interesting, what the media tried to do to us as well is they tried to pit Nick Berg's father and us against each other and say that Nick Berg's dad was deeply upset at us, which was interesting because if you remember, like you just mentioned at the time, there were all these weird lies coming out about how long he was detained for, how did he even get beheaded if he was already in the prison under the watch of American soldiers at the time. And Nick Berg's dad was actually trying to file lawsuits against the U.S. government at the time to try to actually figure out what happened to his son. So I just find it amusing that they were trying to act like we were the ones who insulted Nick Berg's father when the U.S. government still to this day hasn't told the truth about what happened with him. And Nick Berg's father will openly talk about that. What do you think their motive was for doing that? Like, I know that in other cases, they've leaned on or intimidated people in order to pressure them into, you know, becoming informants or something. But what would, what would their motive be here, do you think? To try to intimidate us, I mean? Yeah, yeah, to set you and Nick Berg's dad against one another. I mean, I think it had a multi-layered agenda to it. On one hand, you could say that, you know, this story overshadowed the lies that actually surfaced about the Nickberg beheading. So they wanted to sort of scapegoat us as we're the, you know, we're somehow these pranksters who are just terrible people for doing this. But in terms of the agenda of why it got even absorbed into the media so quickly, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but my theory on that is that the media was just so hungry at the time for anything that made Muslims look bad or look like terrorists and that was right yeah and it was just like perfect it was like they were so hungry that they didn't even bother to fact check it which i think says a lot for that time period and that climate so i mean in a way we're lucky these isis videos didn't come until years later outside of this sort of intense climate even though the climate continued to some degree this was the most i would say this era like 2003 2004 was the most intense climate for this kind of like anti-Muslim rhetoric, short of right after 9-11, I guess. Well, I just wanted to remind people, I actually, on our Twitter, I actually did a quick thread of all the smears that they did of Saddam Hussein. I know we're here to talk about Project for a New American Century, but I think this might be a fun 
little thing to go through Robbie uh, with. Okay, so this is actually, I get it straight from the White House. Okay, let me read this for you. This is from Associated Press. One witness told London-based human rights group Indict that inmates sometimes were murdered by being dropped into shredding machines. Some people went in headfirst and died quickly, while others were put in feet first and died screaming. The witness said, at least on one occasion, that Kuse supervised these shredding machine murders. I mean, it's just, it's so, so cartoon. I had actually never heard that before. I remember reading stuff in Maxim magazine <laughs> from before 9-11. Probably some of it was true, but Saddam Hussein's sons had like a four or five page long article in Maxim magazine. Kind of reminded me in a way that Vice Geopolitical... <laughs> And I like to pull it up now to just see how propagandistic it was, but it was just all about how they were, you know, murdering people in cold blood and shooting up weddings with machine guns. And I mean, who knows if some of that was true, but I think, you know, how crazy is it though, that the Bush administration, while Saddam Hussein was hiding from the U S forces, published photos of his sons on a fucking autopsy slab with the Y incisions on them. I mean, that was nuts. Like, that was circulated in the mainstream media. Yeah, that's some serial killer shit. That's so gross. But actually, this is something that Dan Rather said in April 14, 2003. Some former inmates say that in the 1990s, the prisons became so overcrowded that Saddam's son Uday ordered hundreds executed to make room for more. It's, it just sounds ridiculous. Sounds like the type of stuff we hear now about North Korea. Exactly. Oh, speaking of, there's also the Iraqi equivalent of the 120 dogs. Okay, this one is two witnesses from the village of Salman Pak, south of the capital, said they had seen 115 corpses stacked in piles here on April 10th. From dogs? Like being murdered with dogs? No, no. No, it's like, as an analogy, remember when there was this Hong Kong parody site that said that Kim Jong-un killed his uncle with 120 dogs and all these, yeah. Yeah. So this news brief sounds like the equivalent of that where allegedly these two unnamed witnesses said that there were 115 corpses. That's so crazy. Yeah. Well, there was one about how Uday supposedly... He did have like his own sort of like miniature private zoo with tigers and other big cats. And there was this fable circulated by U.S. media that he fed people to the tigers. There was some zookeeper who was asked about it at one point, And he was like, uh, no, they're, I've been tending them for years. They're kind of affectionate. You know, you just can't let your guard down. <laughs> but, but they're not eating people. <laughs> yeah. Um, the demonization of Saddam was ridiculous. But I'm hoping today, like, they can't ever get that ridiculous. So this is kind of where we need to begin. So the war in Iraq, was it a planned thing from before Bush got into office? Yeah, I mean, it's been in the work since, you can even argue from before the, the first Iraq war under George H.W. Bush, there was a split in his administration that's sort of been well-established by now by historians and different reporters that people like Dick Cheney and Wolfowitz, during the first Gulf War under George H.W. Bush, really wanted us to do a full-scale invasion of the country and to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And that 
was obviously not done at the time, but it sort of evolved and morphed over the 1990s into different plans. And even some of those plans that Democrats supported, unfortunately, including people like Bernie Sanders supported. And specifically, those plans involved what they tried to sell to the Democrats and to like the Congress and Senate at large. And when I say they, I mean neoconservative policymakers. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that in a second. But one of their main strategies to try to get us to overthrow Iraq in the 90s was to arm opposition members against the Ba'athists and against Saddam Hussein's government. And apparently that was, you know, why Saddam Hussein allegedly gassed his own people is because we were funding and exacerbating this uprising and then we completely abandoned them at a certain point. And then a lot of them were killed. So this was one attempt that actually managed to get bills passed in the House and Senate to try to fund the opposition and overthrow Saddam Hussein that way. So it definitely had parallels to what's happening now in Syria or what started in Syria back in like 2011, 2012. But the main drivers of sort of the policy against Iraq was this group called the Project for the New American Century. The Project for the New American Century is founded by people who you could describe as neo-Reaganites, a mixture of policy wonks and actual Reagan policymakers who served in the Reagan administration. Let me just go over the list of the people who were the board of directors. William Crystal is the chairman of the project, and Robert Kagan, Devin Gaffney Cross, Bruce B. Jackson, and John Bolton serve as directors, and Gary Schmidt is the executive director of the project. Yes. And some of those names... Um, oh, Robbie, if I could cut in for a second, I was wondering if you could maybe go over just sort of, I guess, what neoconservatism is and sort of how it's distinct from... Like, I, th- I think a lot of people point to people that they, they identify as neocons, but maybe aren't clear on what distinguishes that from liberal hawks or, you know, just garden variety imperialism. Kind of wh- where do they come from and kind of, I guess, like, what's their worldview? What makes them distinct? Well, so there's a lot of ground to cover in this area, but I'll, I'll give you a synopsis. So there was this scholar named Leo Strauss who sort of founded a lot of this original ideology and had a lot of influential students in his class. Uh, one of his students was Paul Wolfowitz, who you can draw a direct line from sort of Leo Strauss's original teachings and what later became the Wolfowitz Doctrine and PNAC. But Leo Strauss, while he was extremely influential, he actually did not coin the term neoconservatism. And he wasn't sort of the primary face of neoconservatism throughout the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s. The person who did sort of take that mantle was a, someone who was influenced by Leo Strauss named Irving Kristol. Irving Kristol was one of these sort of modern intellectuals, modern philosophers who really sort of cut his teeth and became a famous writer as the co-editor for a magazine uh, published throughout the, I believe, the late 50s, uh, 1960s, and even I think it was even published throughout the 70s called Encounter Magazine. It might still be, I, I don't know how long it actually was published for, but Irving Kristol was the co-editor of this magazine, and the magazine was mainly for liberal intellectuals. 
it wasn't made for conservatives. It had like a lot of fiction in it, as well as commentary, editorializing. It had some journalism in it, but it was mostly like editorials and things like that. Now, it was revealed by Rampart magazine. I don't remember when, I think maybe in the early 70s, that Encounter magazine was actually partly being secretly funded by the CIA. Now, Irving Kristol claims that he was annoyed when he found out it was being funded by the CIA. But what's interesting is if you link that sort of together with what Irving Kristol did, is Irving Kristol was, he started as a, apparently a neo-Marxist, then he became a neo-Trotskyite, then he became a Stalinist, then he became a neo, um, he, he, he actually has a quote where he goes through and kind of jokingly says all the different transitions he's made politically, all the way to becoming a neoconservative. So he morphed wow. throughout <laughs> you know, ideologies. And you know, when, once you sort of factor in the fact that the CIA was funding him, you could maybe even argue that was you know, sort of morphing to all these different things to try to spread a core imperialist American hegemonic ideology to all these different sort of ideologies might have been the purpose. I don't know. That's something that's maybe still up for debate. But Irving Kristol, of course, is the father of Bill Kristol who is in this modern era, the, probably the most influential neoconservative now. But in between that time, well, I guess I should explain really quickly, the term neoconservative, Irving Kristol was described as a neoconservative by a critic, and he didn't actually coin it himself. And the term sort of means that it's a liberal who has been mugged by reality. And that's not accidental that it kind of has coded let's say maybe racial racist undertones to it because you have to think about the seventies, especially the eighties, the Reagan era, it was like violent crime, you know, was the main thing. Like you're going to get killed if you walk outside your door. That's how violent society is getting. And, you know, muggers and rapists and purse snatchers. So that was, you know, in short, being mugged by a liberal being mugged by reality is how you become a neoconservative. So these assholes are invoking Death Wish and Dirty Harry here. <laughs> 100%. I mean, even one of the other, to me, patriarchs of neoconservatism, Donald Kagan, he says in a writing uh, that I remember... Are you related to Robert Kagan? He is uh, Robert Kagan's father, yeah. A whole lot of fail sons in the neoconservative movement. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and he, and actually John Schwartz of The Intercept has written some incredible stuff about some of the racist things that neocons used to say, especially going back to the 80s and 70s, when you really look at you know, the things they've written or said. Don Kagan said that he realized that when Yale let black student activists like take over one of the halls on the Yale campus and stay there for a couple of days straight, that he realized that liberals were like the people who appeased to Hitler in the 1930s and that caved to Wow. So he was comparing black. This sounds like Jonathan Chait, triggered from student activism. Exactly. So that's what's interesting <laughs> now is a lot of these neocons started as these sort of, you know, anti, I don't want to call them social justice warriors, but like anti-activism basically. And it has parallels to today with like sort of the Ben Shapiro's or the, you know, Jordan Peterson's or what have you. Without dipping too far into long-distance psychoanalysis, do you think these folks always had kind of an authoritarian bent? Yeah. I mean, I think authoritarian in the sense that they fundamentally believe America 
should be the arbiters of sort of the world order, the world police, and that our ideology is good and therefore we should impose it on the rest of the world. So I think for them, it's like authoritarianism, some, but to them it's kind of has like a Thanos you know, level complex villain aspect to it because they believe what they're doing is good. So, And presumably there should be some sort of intellectual elite that runs the country via some kind of technocracy, including them, naturally. There's a quote that kind of slipped through the cracks of Bill Kristol from 2015 when Obama was still in office and the neocons are actually going on TV to lobby for reinvading Iraq. This is something I don't think most people remember. Bill Kristol, Kagan, all these people were on TV just a few years ago saying we need to send 30,000 troops back into Iraq to fight ISIS. And Bill Kristol was arguing on the Morning Joe show with a bunch of people. And, and one of the guys was like, look, Bill, it's crazy that you're saying that we should go back into Iraq when there is no appetite in this country at all for doing something like this right now. The polling shows that it's like very low and, no, and the people in Congress and the Senate aren't going to vote for it. Bill Kristol was like, well, yeah, most of the people won't, you know, before, but we should still do it. And the guy's like, you think we should go against the will of the American people, even if there are people in the government who are like willing to be convinced by this? And Bill Crystal just like screams, yes! Right. They think it's a mark of bravery, which is why, like, that's the way Cheney used to talk. I think Bart Gelman uh, wrote a lot about that. He regarded it as a, a principled stand against the mob to say, sorry, we're going to we're going to spill American blood. We're going to have your children killed over your objection. Yeah. So when it's convenient for them, they want to override the will of the American people. And then what's also convenient for them, they want to use polling by the American people to convince people to do horrible things. So it's, they want to have their cake and eat it too, which the neocons are very good at doing. Okay. So let's actually go back to 1997 when Project for a New American Century started. The Soviet Union had just fallen so my take is they just needed to find a new villain for the war machine. Is that the right read? I think that that's, yeah, that's mostly a right read on what happened. But at the same time, even though they were trying to find a new villain after the Soviet Union collapsed, they were still openly saying things about how, even though the Soviet Union has collapsed, a rogue Russian state could rise in its place and become a threat. So they were sort of trying to do both things. They were trying to advocate for other wars, other enemies like Saddam Hussein, but then also still saying at the same time, what, you know, even though the Soviet Union's collapse, they still have nukes, they still have, you know, all this land and influence. So we got to watch out about them too. And we're on both tracks. But primarily that PNAC, when it first started, was very much focused on the Middle East specifically. And it melded with sort of Israeli foreign policy constructions from the time. And one of the reasons I say that is because it sort of coincided with some of the most important PNAC letters. They sent letters to presidents trying to lobby them to do things like overthrow Saddam Hussein. But there was a think tank that was really similar to PNAC that had some of the same people, Douglas Fife, Richard Pearl, that wrote a paper called A Clean Break Securing the Realm for the Incoming Netanyahu Administration in the late 90s, and it was advocating for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and things like that. So there were sort of, you know, they were trying to spread this message around at different places as well. But in 1998, January 26, PNAC sends a letter to President Bill Clinton at the time, and it is saying that, I'll, I'll actually quote from part of the document, 
right now. It says, we are writing you because we are convinced that current American policy toward Iraq is not succeeding and that we may soon face a threat in the Middle East more serious than any we have known since the end of the Cold War. So they're basically trying to allege that the policy of containment, you know, they call it, of Saddam Hussein is a terrible policy and that he's eventually going to break free of this containment and basically attack the United States with chemical or biological weapons. They're saying this as early as 1998. So they're setting the stage for something that they got miraculously handed after 9-11, which was an actual biological attack on our country um, in the form of the anthrax attacks after 9-11. Did they actually believe this was true or was this pumping up the war machine? I think it's 100% untrue. They knew it. They are using what I think was their sort of the thing that they knew they could generate the most sort of policy constructions out of because there were already a lot of forces and people behind the scenes who probably were still holdovers from the George H.W. Bush senior administration who wanted us to take out Saddam Hussein and felt embarrassed on some level or their pride was hurt that we pulled out of Iraq so quickly and left him there. So I think that, you know, they were hedging on the fact that there was a lot of forces still in D.C., they really did want to complete this overthrow of Saddam Hussein. My read, I guess, on the neocons has sort of always been that in addition to, you know, wanting to find new food for the war machine, they also were genuinely kind of excited about, like, they saw this as an opportunity for American supremacy now that we were the only, like, world hegemon left. And there was a genuine belief there paired, like, along with supreme amounts of, like, cynicism and stuff. And I was wondering if you could kind of elucidate the difference sort of between them and your garden variety liberal interventionist. Because, like, in policy-wise, they ended up converging a lot of the time. But how were they different? Well, that's a very good question, because if we try to look at the landscape now, it seems like they're virtually identical that they sort yeah. of liberal interventionists share very much the same ideology as the neoconservatives. I would say that that real turning point took place in the second term of Obama. Actually, no, I'd say even the first term of Obama is sort of when we started to see that conversion. I disagree. I actually think it started in 2001. I mean, how many liberals actually opposed the war in Iraq? How many of them cheerleaded for it? Well, no, no, that's a good point. I mean, you could even make that argument that they had sucked in most of the liberals back then. But I think even though you're right about that, there was sort of a rubber band effect where the pendulum swung against neoconservatism, at least, you know, partially superficially, somewhat substantially among the Democrats for a little bit. And then they softened again when Obama got in office because Obama sort of embraced a lot of those neoconservative policies. Bill Kristol actually said when Obama first got in office that he personally met with him. And after meeting with him in the White House, he believes Obama is a born-again neocon. Oh, wait, Robbie, can we try to stay linear just because I don't want to confuse people? So let's go back to their big document that came out on September 2000. Rebuilding America's Defenses? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean... This was how I originally got interested in PNAC, and I think it's how a lot of people out there did too. And I guess I'll just go to the sort of the most controversial thing in this document that sort of piqued my interest is in it. Uh, This is a year before 9-11. They say that the process of transformation, well, first I should say that this entire document, Rebuilding America's Defenses, is about 
how to establish sort of America's supremacy over the rest of the world, sort of a long-term investment for the future of how we can maintain that supremacy after the fall of the Soviet Union. And it comes up with a multi-point strategy of how to do that. And now, actually, there's something, maybe I'll mention this first, because this is really fascinating. There's a big focus in this document about how we need to have supremacy, not just in the air, land, and sea, like the traditional way of looking at warfare, but also in cyberspace and actual outer space. <laughs> you know, so it, that's to me... Space Force! Yeah, that's, so the Space Force that Trump's talking about... <laughs> side, you have this, you know, this soft censorship happening all across the internet to destroy alternative media. So you could kind of argue that these plans are coming into fruition 19 years later or so. But the most controversial thing in the document is they say that to get all these things that they want, they say, quote, further, the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. And miraculously, and sort of, you know, really conveniently for them, they got an attack a year later, a domestic attack that almost had the exact death toll as Pearl Harbor. So it's very eerie to go back and look at this document, especially this quote. And there's journalists out there who have tried to say this quote was taken out of context by conspiracy theorists and people make way too big of a deal about it. I've actually sort of argued with Matt Taibbi about the subject. He wrote a book sort of mocking people who really honed in on rebuilding America's defenses. But I would argue that this idea of a new Pearl Harbor is not just some coincidental drop in in this document or just casually mentioned in passing. I believe this was a dream or a fantasy of neocons for many, many years. And in my film, A Very Heavy Agenda, I actually found other instances where these same neocons were fantasizing about a new Pearl Harbor for you know, several years before this, using the phrase, you know, a new Pearl Harbor. So this is not something just incidental or new. This was something that they had been fantasizing about for a while. And there's other crazy things in this document. Wasn't Robert Kagan the head of the FBI or CIA? Neither. He actually worked as a very young man. He got his start working for the Office of Information. Yeah, sorry. The propaganda arm of the State Department. And he sort of moved through the Reagan administration doing all these interesting things as a very young man, including working under Elliot Abrams, another PNAC neoconservative, to spread anti-Sandinista propaganda using illegal money from Oliver North's slush fund. And it's interesting that Elliot Abrams didn't really go fully through the ringer because he was pardoned. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if all of his entire office was exposed at once because Robert Kagan was instrumental in sort of working out some of this propaganda. But Robert Kagan also worked for someone who's considered a Cold Warrior Democrat named Jack Kemp. So one could argue that this melding of neoconservatism, liberal hawk, neoliberal hawk, liberal interventionism was already taking place back then in the form of these more vocal sort of hawkish liberal politicians like Jack Kemp, which uh, Robert Kagan was a speechwriter for at the time. And that's something you'll hear neocons talk about often, about how they really admire these cold warrior Democrats, which is kind of fascinating thinking about where they are now. It's almost like they're trying to resurrect the Cold War and trying to, again, glue themselves more to the Democratic Party and to spread sort of a xenophobic, Cold War-ish, anti-Russian sort of, you know, vibe. Can we go back to this document? On page 30, this thing frightens me. Air Force towards a global first strike 
force. What does that mean? I'm not sure exactly what that passage means, but I think that one of the things that keeps coming up in this document over and over again, and maybe that's referencing that, is this idea of preemptive military assault and building up all this fear. So they, if you go through the whole document, all of sort of this groundwork that the George W. Bush administration later used about Saddam having a nuclear program, it all comes from this document. And they're essentially trying to make the case that, well, Saddam's trying to build nukes, so we might as well just attack him now anyways. Like, why shouldn't we? For our own protection, for the protection of the world. So I think that the passage you read is basically alleging that we should have like almost like a preemptive strike force sort of monitoring the globe. And we already do. This is, you have to think it's been 19 years since this document came out. All this stuff is really actually actively in place now. So how did 9-11 change their standing in society? Like, did they get more media coverage, more appointments to cabinets? Like, what happened with 9-11? Well, the crazy thing is they actually rose in popularity and sort of established their clout about a year before 9-11 or longer. You could argue that their real public policy coup didn't happen after 9-11 but it happened when the George W. Bush transition team was being put in place after he was chosen by the Supreme Court to be president of the United States. There were over 17 signatories, founders, and directors from the Project for the New American Century implanted into the Bush administration into high positions. As far as I know, and I've been looking into think tanks for a long time, That is the most direct transition from a think tank in Washington, D.C. to an administration, and the more members transition into it than any administration in history or since. So that gave them a huge leg up. I mean, they were already completely plugged in to the Bush administration, and they were already sharpening their knives on Iraq and Saddam Hussein, even predating the Bush administration, you know, in these papers to Bill Clinton. So it's like they were actually preparing for the war even before he transitioned into the White House. Exactly. And Dick Cheney is one of these interesting people who sort of, I mean, he's definitely a neocon, but I don't know if he's the brains necessarily behind, you know, ultimately behind a lot of this stuff. He's more of a blunt instrument to carry out a lot of their ideas. I would say one of the main brains behind this policy proposal and who ended up going into the Bush administration is Paul Wolfowitz. I would say he was one of the most influential neocons from this group, PNAC, to go into the Bush administration and to make policy. And there's crazy things that he was part of in the administration that really, you know, history sort of ignores now. And I could go into some of that stuff if you'd like. One thing I was wondering is why the fixation on Israel? Like, I mean, there's, there's not really anything about pursuing American supremacy that necessarily requires or depends on Israel. We've used and discarded tons of proxies over the years. Why is Israel considered this indispensable part of this grand design for American global supremacy? Well, this has been a long-running debate within sort of neoconservative critique for a long time. And, you know, I've even gotten flack for not overtly saying that the neocons are all about dual loyalty to Israel. That is an argument that sort of really was prominent in the early 2000s against neoconservatives, that they were mainly doing this actually secretly to benefit Israel because that's where their loyalty lie. I think someone who's actually written 
some incredible stuff about this subject you're asking about, I think everyone should check out, is Jim Loeb. And he has this excellent website called Loeblog, where there's a talk that he explains the relationship between neoconservatives, Jewish people in this country, and Israel, and how sort of they all link together. And I can't break it down better than he did, but one person that he quotes, which was very interesting, is Bill Bennett, someone who sort of fits in this weird category of kind of evangelical Christian, classic conservative, and neocon. He was actually the education secretary under Reagan. He's responsible for actually heading some of the curriculum that public schools were teaching students. He's a PNAC signatory. He was also drug czar at one time. He said that Israel's fate and the United States' fate is one and the same. And he's using the word fate sort of in terms of uh, like their destiny. And I think that it's hard to fully break down, but I do think a lot of neocons believe in American hegemony and Israeli hegemony equally and as a mutually beneficial sort of thing for geostrategic ends. And I think maybe on some level they see Saudi Arabia similarly, but they don't want to ideologically link themselves to the, you know, the Saudi regime. Israel seems like some kind of symbolic moral beacon for them because they like to say it's the only functioning democracy in the Middle East, you know, that meme that you constantly hear. Right, yeah, and they see it as like a, what, like a mini-me of America, a little brother or something. Well, the funny thing is that what people don't realize is every time there's a democracy in the Middle East, like with Qasim or Masadag, America comes in and does a coup and makes sure there isn't one. Yeah. And I think this is just something that I've decided over the years doing research on neoconservatives. And I might be wrong about this, but something that I've just come to myself is that I believe that neocons were very influenced by and they admired the way that the IDF and the Mossad was so brutal and uncompromising against Palestinians and against other countries. These targeted assassinations that the Mossad would do openly, brazenly. It's things that the CIA would do, try to you know, keep really secret. The Mossad and the Israeli government were very sort of balls to the wall, unconcerned about the international community coming down on them for these things that they would do. And I think that it sort of, the people in the US, these neocons really admired that courage, you know, that they might have seen that Israeli was courageous and didn't care. A lot of things that they adopted after 9-11, the Bush administration pushed out, you could argue they're very sort of Israeli flavored in the sense that we dehumanize Muslims to the point where, well, now we could torture them. Now we can go assassinate them in whatever country we want, and you're not going to be able to say anything about it. So F you, basically. And I think that there's a sort of a spiritual camaraderie there with that. So, you know, that's just my own idea, though. Okay. Um, so can you go back to talking about Paul Wolfowitz? Sure. Paul Wolfowitz, I would say, is one of the main influencers in PNAC. And you could actually, and, the, and people who have ex examined PNAC have drawn the same comparison, is that there was a paper put out by his office I believe it was from 1992, at the very end of the George H.W. Bush administration. Paul Wolfowitz had a paper leak out, and it wasn't meant for public consumption, called the Defense Policy Guidance 1992 to 1994. It was projecting future policy recommendations. This document was later coined the Wolfowitz Doctrine. 
because it seemed to have a specific vision for U.S. imperialism for like the next few decades. This document is very, very similar to Rebuilding America's Defenses by PNAC. Rebuilding America's Defenses, you can almost argue, is an updated version of this. And this is interesting, is that the people that were part of this office that released this paper and who put their names on it include Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and Charles Krauthammer, which is interesting because you know he's mostly known as a talking head, writer, academic, but here he is actually as part of this policy group that wrote this paper. So Paul Wolfowitz got his start in government as the director of policy planning under Ronald Reagan in the very early 80s. And he sort of traversed his way through different positions in the Reagan administration from 1982 to 1986. He was the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Later, he became the ambassador to Indonesia until 1989. And he continued, he sort of got grandfathered in to the uh, George H.W. Bush administration at that point. He continued to be in government. And George H.W. Bush appointed him to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, working directly under Dick Cheney. And then, of course, he wasn't in the Clinton administration. He left office. This paper comes out, leaks to the New York Times, that's a proto-rebuilding America's defenses, sort of gives people an early wake-up call, people who are paying attention in D.C. to that this is what the agenda of these neo-Reaganites actually is. And then in the George W. Bush administration, He's again appointed to a similar policy that he was under George H.W. Bush as the United States Deputy Secretary of Defense, working under Donald Rumsfeld this time. And Donald Rumsfeld, you know, was also in the George H.W. Bush administration in terms of writing policy with Paul Wolfowitz. But one of the most interesting things that Wolfowitz was a part of in the George W. Bush administration after 9-11 that I think has gotten mostly lost by historians was that Paul Wolfowitz, and he's actually openly said this since, is that he doesn't think that the aluminum tubes or the yellow cake or the nukes, none of that stuff mattered to him before the Iraq war. The thing that mattered to him was the anthrax. He thought that that was their best leveraging tool to overthrow Hussein. And he hasn't actually said that overtly, hasn't said like, yeah, we use the anthrax to get into Iraq. But he has said that that was the only thing he was primarily fixated on at the time. And this is what he did in secret. And apparently even in secret to uh, avoid being watched over by Colin Powell. And I personally don't know how true that actually is. If Colin Powell really was hoodwinked by this, this is what some journalists have alleged. But Wolfowitz hired ex-CIA director and PNAC signatory James Woolsey to go on a secret mission. This is before the UN speech that Colin Powell did where he pitched the Iraq war. This mission was James Woolsey was going to go to Hamburg and travel around Europe and interview all these witnesses to try to establish a connection between Saddam Hussein and the 9-11 attacks and Saddam Hussein and the 2001 anthrax attacks. And this is what the official story says that Wolfowitz sent him on a fact-finding mission to go find evidence for this. But in reality, what you can see actually happen is that Woolsey wasn't going on a fact-finding mission. He was going on a press tour uh, at the same time saying that Saddam Hussein was probably behind 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. And actually, he went on TV on 9-11 and 9-12 
saying that Saddam Hussein was responsible. And he said it so much and so often that actually, I think it was, I don't remember which reporter it was, but the reporter stops him on one of his TV appearances and says, why do you keep mentioning Iraq? You keep bringing up Iraq and you have to explain why you keep bringing that up because you keep repeating things on TV. People are inclined to believe it. And he just sort of laughs like he realizes how over the top he's being. I think this was part of Wolfowitz's role was running propaganda behind the scenes to actually try to grease the skids for the Iraq war. But specifically this fixation on anthrax that people forget that we had a following attack a month after 9-11, less than a month of a string of five deaths in the United States due to weaponized anthrax being sent through the mail. And it was awfully convenient for the Bush administration because here are all these neocons writing for years and years about how we need to dismantle Saddam Hussein's alleged biological weapons program. He's going to send anthrax on Scud missiles over the United States and kill a bunch of people. So they got you know this perfect event, not just 9-11, but these anthrax attacks to really sort of close the circle about why we should invade Iraq. And I find that very fascinating and that sort of... Um, one more thing is, I remember everyone in episode two where Colleen Rowley tells us it's like one man from a government uh, building, like which one? Um, CDC building. So who committed suicide? But there's a, probably a second one and it also came from the CDC building. Are you talking about anthrax? Yes. Yeah, I'm actually not familiar with that that specific story. Uh, okay, well, listen to our episode two and we had an FBI whistleblower on there and she tells us like eventually they tracked it down to some dude from the CDC. Oh, I think you're referring to Bruce Ivins or possibly Stephen Hatfield. Both of them. Yeah, so the FBI eventually pinned the attacks on this lone nut scientist they claimed was a super patriot and that was his motive for doing it which is interesting because the FBI sort of, if you really break down what they're saying, they're trying to say that the motive was this guy was basically inspired to be a patriot by sort of the neoconservative forces in DC. He wanted to essentially frame Muslims for this bioterrorist attack. And I've done extensive research on the anthrax attacks. I don't believe that Bruce Ivins was the killer behind those attacks and neither do some of the victims, which is worth looking into. Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy two senators, have both said that they think the attacks are very odd. They still believe that there are people out there who are guilty of murder who aren't caught yet. It's a subject that really deeply still affects them when they bring it up and talk about it, because the official story about what happened is very odd and convenient. And also, just throwing this out there, Robert Mueller was responsible for guiding this investigation. And, you know, he did a lot of horrible things during the investigation, like trying to frame an innocent man and ruin his reputation publicly. So what you were saying earlier, Robbie, about Israel acting unilaterally and neocons looking to Israel, yeah, I've sort of always gotten the sense that active, like unilateral action is a pretty big deal for, like that's important to neocons. Like liberal internationalists care about the UN, at least using it as a fig leaf. But even though it doesn't really constrain our action as much as it ratifies it, neocons seem to resent that or resent the Supreme Court needing to ratify the stuff that Bush was doing. It, it always reminds me of the right-wingers who seem to resent the fact that there's a social stigma now on shouting the N-word in public. They really just want to say it with their chest. <laughs> they hate having the dog whistle. 
But I think there's an ideological underpinning to that, right? Could you talk about the unitary executive theory a little bit and how that's driven the neocon agenda, especially in the Bush administration? Yeah. I mean, most people probably know that phrase now after watching the film Vice, which is sort of all about Dick Cheney's rise to power and his attempts to shape, eventually create a unitary executive, which effectively he helped create in the George W. Bush administration. But even if that phrase wasn't previously written in some of the previous neocon paperwork, and even this early document like the Wolfowitz Doctrine, the ideas were very similar, at the very least in terms of the way we interact with the world stage and any of these international bodies. It's very clear that on some level, the neocons would prefer to do what you're talking about, to just be posturing, puffing out their chest, very much doing things unilaterally without listening to the UN, especially without listening to the International Criminal Court. And I think that over time, you know, and it's hard to say if all of them, I think that there are some neocons who still, who really actually like the way that Trump is representing sort of this big stick, puffing his chest out, threatening other countries openly. I think that there are actually neocons who appreciate that and like that. But then you have these other neocons who have sort of split off posture now that they think Trump is the end of the world and that they want him impeached and they think he's in bed with Putin, like Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan from PNAC, who have tried to morph themselves and associate themselves with the people who at least superficially pretend to care about the UN and uh, these international bodies. But I think when the opportunity comes around, people like Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan will flip on a dime, you know, when it comes to defying the UN or anything like that, because ultimately they primarily believe in American hegemony and there really isn't, like Robert Kagan has actually said, um, and this is something I believe I included in my documentary, that when you're the world power, sometimes you have to break international law to assert your power and protect your interests. And that's just the way that it needs to be. Because to think otherwise would be absurd. Because why should the world power listen to a group that is trying to conflict with its own interests or protection or self-preservation? So to them, it's like a no-brainer. One kind of lateral question, how do these neocons see NATO and how did they see it in the 90s versus like, how do they see NATO now? I think a lot of the neocons see it the same way they see it now as they saw it then, but they talk about it differently. So back in the 90s, when NATO like doubled its membership with all these old Soviet bloc countries, the neocons saw it openly like it was a failsafe against if the Soviet Union came back or if Russia asserted itself on the world stage again. And I think that that's pretty much the way that they see it now. And that hasn't changed. But the difference is they act like it's more of a liberal humanitarian army now. When it, back then, it was very openly talked about as a check on you know, the Soviet Union or if the Soviet Union came back. But now it's sort of soaked in into the public consciousness as, oh, this is this international conglomerate of people trying to protect each other and you know, we'll rush to protect a country that's under NATO membership if they're attacked. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing. They've tried to spin it over time as this sort of positive humanitarian thing. 
I never praised Tucker Carlson except for this one question he asked Trump, where he was like, "Do you think Americans should fight and die for Montenegro?" Yeah, I remember that. And yeah, that's essentially what the charter of NATO says: is that if a NATO member is attacked, um, that it's sort of our duty to help defend them. Of course, Trump's argument comes down to, well, they're not paying us enough. You know, these members aren't paying us enough, so they need to pay us more for our protection. But someone who's actually had a lot of great things to say about this is Lawrence Wilkerson, the guy who worked in the Bush administration alongside Colin Powell. He goes back through the entire history of when we actually tried to court Russia to be a NATO member. And we put out this gesture in the 90s, like, hey, we want you to be a part of this too. Like, we want you to be a part of this coalition. And then when Russia actually was like seriously approaching it and trying to respond to the United States in a serious way, then we sort of reneged on it because we never really meant it because obviously this was meant to be a check on Russia, regardless of if the Soviet Union comes back or not. And I think that that's something that the neocons have always sort of had in the back of their minds that even if the Soviet Union doesn't come back, we can use this country as an excuse to ramp things up in the future because they're probably going to become powerful again in some way. And I think that that's something that they've always been sort of hedging on is hoping that they could again scapegoat Russia and bring back the sort of Cold War mentality, which they've done. Yeah, sadly, it's been going on since probably about 2005 or six. So are we going to see the death of neoconservatism anytime soon? I think no. Because neoconservatives are great at morphing and adapting to whatever the current climate is, and also spreading their rhetoric and their ideology like a virus to all different sectors of the political debate. And right now, what I see is even anti-war people on the left sometimes use, I mean, like, I don't know how you guys feel about Tulsi Gabbard, but I even see some sort of neocon talking points that she- Not a fan, personally, but go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) No, she was actually endorsed by the American Enterprise Institute. So- Of course. um, (laughs) Yeah, she's totally neocon. That's what bothers me is we've gone to the point now where liberals like Hillary Clinton sound exactly like Robert Kagan or Bill Kristol on issues like Russia, Syria. And then we have Tulsi Gabbard sort of propping up this war on terror rhetoric, which is a neocon construct. And the idea that you can be a dove on regime change, but a hawk on terror is, if anybody believes that, that belief in and of itself is trapped in a prism of a distorted neoconservative you know, framework. It's manufactured because the war on terror is designed to do regime change. The war on terror was originally including Iraq. So we can't forget that. You can't separate those two things from each other. So I think the neocons are actually more powerful than ever. It may not seem that way because the Bush era was on the surface. It seemed like that was their most powerful era ever. I think they're more powerful than they've ever been. And we're sort of seeing them adapt and morph into all these areas in a way that they never really did before. I mean, they're exploding into all these different areas, including, you know, the fake news watchdog racket. I mean, Alliance for Securing Democracy, Mm. think tank that's tracking Russian bot activity has all the same people in it that, you know, PIAC had or a lot of adjacent people, including people from the Obama administration, some of these more hawkish people like Mike Morrell and things like that. But then you have Michael Shirtoff and Bill Kristol in there. And then you even have some of these neocons from the Bush administration like Tom Ridge starting their own companies like NewsGuard now, which are kind of adopting this model of we need to purge the internet of controversial 
or you know alternative media that you know sort of challenges the status quo. So that's I mean wonderful. If you want, <laughs> if you want to see, you know, I think some of their goals we're already seeing them sort of materializing, which is starting a new cold war and sort of controlling cyberspace. And those are two things that are sort of really coming into the forefront right now. I mean, not as much the Cold War 2.0 now, but the cyberspace thing, controlling the internet is something I think that they've always felt was really important. So I think we're in a really bad way in terms of their influence is bigger than ever. I mean, did you see that Fat Joe woke Bill Crystal MSNBC special? Sadly, uh, thankfully I know, but I know what you're talking about and we need to retire the word woke because of that. <laughs> this sounds awful, and I'm going to hate myself for asking this, but what happened? <laughs> I mean, it was on a terrible show at MSNBC that no one even watches, this guy named Ari Melber, just doing this. He thought it was really fun to show a little package about how R&B hip-hop artist Fat Joe and woke Bill Crystal, because Bill Crystal's now a liberal, apparently, and how they're becoming friends and pals to fight Trump together and how they're joining this. Oh my God, this is some Hamilton shit. <sighs> extremely over the top. I mean, and they're actually like filming. MSNBC sent a camera crew out to follow Fat Joe and Bill Crystal cruise New York to like talk to people on the street about Trump. <sighs> wow. One question that I had, Robbie, was how Iran figures into all this. Like my assumption has always been that one of the major reasons that the neocons wanted to invade Iraq was to use it as this like a staging platform for like then invading Iran, which would be an even bigger project. There's a quote, someone in the administration supposedly told a journalist at one point that everyone wants to go, like everybody here in the administration wants to go to Iraq, but real men want to go to Tehran or something like that. I think I've heard that quote before. So that kind of illustrates an interesting, I would say there was an actual split in the neocon consensus, at least rhetorically, in the middle of the Bush administration. And there's actually a quote, my pal John Gold interviewed this guy, Jonathan Kay, who's now kind of represents himself as like a Sam Harrisy, Jordan Peterson kind of anti-social justice lawyer guy. But Jonathan Kay was actually part of this neocon think tank called the Foundation for Defense of Democracy which formed after 9-11, unlike PNAC, it didn't exist before 9-11, but its primary purpose was to put heat on Iran and write and publish like anti-Iran think tank papers and constructions about Iranian regime change. This think tank actually had a lot of PNAC members in it, people who, I'll just mention a few, Michael Ledeen, uh, Oh, that lunatic. James Woolsey, um, and I think even... Khaliazad from PNAC was in it, I think. But this think tank sort of illustrated a push that was coming from certain neoconservatives within PNAC, or just the whole neocon field, to focus on Iran. And this guy, Jonathan Kay, was also a member of the FTD. In an interview with my pal, John Gold, he says, John Gold's like, you know, do you still consider yourself a neocon? And he said no, because he split off from them when they started focusing too much on invading Iran, which is interesting because he was part of an anti-Iran think tank, the FDD. But I think rhetorically, this illustrates an interesting rhetorical difference, is they knew, even during the Bush administration, that they had to soften some of their rhetoric or change the way that they talked because they were being exposed 
by alternative media and media in general about how dangerous and hawkish they were. So I believe that people like John Kay and other neocons, even William Crystal and Robert Kagan, decided to sort of hide or not really openly talk about how they wanted to overthrow Iran, at least during that time period. And they kind of put it on the back burner. Now, people like Michael Ledeen and other neocons were still continuing to talk about it. So you saw early on a kind of a split. And it wasn't like an ideological split, because I believe Kagan and Crystal really still want to do regime change in Iran. But it was more of a public perception split. How are they going to do PR? And they decided to kind of not talk about overthrowing Iran. It was too scary, I think, for the general public. So they knew to pull back on that. But I think that's been the plan this entire time. And we even saw it pop back up during the Obama administration. There were some interesting events that happened where Hillary seemed to be pushing for war in Iran during various points in Obama administration. Obliterate Iran. She even designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, or she tried to. Yeah. And she also declassified Mecca from being a terrorist organization. Exactly. Which is. Oh, was she instrumental in that? I mean, I, I knew that a lot of lobbying money went into that, but I didn't know she Howard was. Howard Dean was the main lobbyist, but she's right. the Secretary of State, right? Who classifies and declassifies terrorist organization. Yeah, and we already saw things that the Obama administration was doing, working with the MEK in collaboration with the Mossad. This has all been reported on now by the New York Times that they were behind assassinating these nuclear scientists in Iran and in planting this dangerous computer virus Stuxnet that can disrupt like public power grids and stuff like that, you know, to change the azimuth on their nuclear centrifuges so that they would basically be useless to them by the end of the centrifuging process. So I think we saw neocon maneuvers popping up during the Obama administration in terms of Iran. But now what we see is this other faction of neoconservatism that remained pro-Trump that are trying to guide the policy now into a war with Iran that include people like John Bolton and other neocons like Michael Ledeen. And most people do not realize that Michael Ledeen actually co-wrote a crazy Islamophobic pro-war on terror book with Michael Flynn called A Field of Light, How to Defeat Radical Islamic Terrorism or something like that. So Michael Ledeen already had some kind of in into the Trump administration. James Woolsey was being courted in the Trump administration. These Iran regime change neocons were very much involved in the transition team. I mean, Frank Gaffney, one of the biggest ones, who's also a PNAC signatory, was the original inspiration for Trump's Muslim ban. So you have all these pieces in place now where this could become a very real possibility of some kind of actual regime change operation in Iran. I mean, the Trump administration right now is openly talking about economically squeezing them to the point of that they're, you know, the public will overthrow the regime. So they want that for sure. Well, thank God. Um, one thing is that Iran seems to have made a deal with India where they like give money, where Iran, India gives money in rupees and Iran gives them oil. So they won't be completely squeezed. Yeah. And there was a period too during the end of the Obama administration where Tom Cotton, this sort of veteran, you know, fresh faced senator who's really a neocon puppet. I mean, Tom Cotton, you know, we look at people like Marco Rubio as their neocon puppets, but Tom Cotton is like a straight up neocon think tank puppet who, at the behest of Bill Crystal, basically circulated a letter 
among other senators, try to have them rally against the Iran deal, which ended up going through under the Obama administration. But Tom Cotton basically sent around a PNAC letter to his fellow senators. They all signed it. Rand Paul stupidly signed on to it. Even Bolton was spending thousands of dollars trying to imply that Rand Paul was going to get your family nuked at the dinner table for not being hard enough on Iran. Rand Paul eventually caves on this whole thing. Even though Rand Paul's smart enough to know that the neocons in D.C. were behind this Tom Cotton letter. And that was sort of, you know, an attempt for the neocons to really create a wedge there. And if you remember, too, that Netanyahu came to speak to Congress during that same time period to talk about how dangerous the Iran deal was. So I think in terms of the Israel-Neocon crossover, Iran is the main sort of region in the world where they cross over the most. And actually, sorry to interrupt. One thing is that Saudi Arabia also like has insane ideas that Iran is behind all the Houthis and their local Shias. Like they're all scared of Iran for some odd reason. And all of them spin conspiracy theories about Iran. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely they're militarily effective, whereas Saudi Arabia's military is woefully incompetent. So there's that. (laughs) Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I'm just saying like all three together, like I love conspiracy theories spinning about Iran. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And I also think that there is some element of not just some element, but there's an egoistic motivation too for some of these targetings of countries like Iran or even let's say Venezuela or even Russia. Because I think that on some level, these neocon policymakers and aspects of the American deep state, they never forgive and never forget. So when it comes to Iran, they're never going to forgive after the Iranian revolution and the embassy takeover. They're never going to forgive. And Desert One. Yeah. And, and I think that that is a motivating factor for them to do regime change eventually. And with Venezuela, I mean, just the things that the Chavistas and even Hugo Chavez would say about the president at the time. I mean, he said such harsh things about U.S. imperialism in the Bush administration that I think that alone is unforgivable. Hugo Chavez even brought over Cindy Sheehan at one point and let her go on tour with him in Venezuela. And he even brought in like like 9-11 truthers, like William Rodriguez, uh, the janitor who escaped from the World Trade Center. So he was really trying to poke his finger in the Bush administration's eye. And I think for that alone, they will never forgive or forget that. And I think that symbolically, just standing up to American hegemony, even just rhetorically, if you're another one of these world leaders, like even Ahmadinejad, when he was the leader of Iran, it really upsets the neocons here. And I think even something similar with RT, Channel Russia Today, broadcasting such anti-American, you know, controversial viewpoints, it created a situation where they will never forgive that, ever. Actually, never seen RT be that anti-American. Like they're pretty much neutral, in my opinion. Well, I would argue that back when they were first on the air, some of Abby's programming was pretty harshly critical of America. The general maybe tone of the network wasn't, but there were some shows which were taking harsher views against the United States than you would ever see on any other TV channel broadcast here. And we've seen that the government's still mad about this. I mean, like all the Russia hysteria, a lot of it, (laughs) like right after the election, was citing Abby's show, despite the fact that it's been off the air for years. (laughs) The neocons, why do they think that we could just roll over Iran militarily? Because I, I really don't think that we could do that without getting a bloody nose. I mean, the Strait of Hormuz doesn't have a whole lot of maneuvering room for, you know, aircraft carriers. We couldn't even roll over Vietnam. (laughs) 
Well, right. And Iran's military is not, I mean, they're not pushovers. <laughs> yeah, I think that the answer to that is the neocons, they've been itching for a big theater war for a long time. And Iraq, I don't even know if they really got their fix with Iraq. And I think that on some level, there's a sick excitement for them. I mean, if you look at especially like people, neocons like Fred Kagan, Robert Kagan's brother, and the Institute for the Study of War and the things that he's written about, it's like straight up cold equation. Here's how many forces we need to take out Iran's Navy in the Strait of Hormuz. It's just like risk style, you know, World of Warcraft game theory to them. In their minds, they've already gamed all this out. They know exactly how many forces we need, know exactly the duration we need to stay. Um, they think they have it all figured out. So I don't think... Wait, they really think that Amy is still going to cooperate and do conventional warfare like on our turf the way we would want them to fight? Well, I think, <laughs> imagine they, they actually also have a delusion that there's a local population supporting them because they only talk to psychotic Shah supporters and the Shah's fail son. Oh, weird. Okay. That reminds me. Um, sorry, I don't, I don't know if there's time for this or not, but short anecdote. When I was in college, I was pretty right wing and several of us got like tapped of us college Republicans to go to the APAC conference in DC. There's some kind of program for college kids that's like, I don't know, Hazara on the cheap for Gentiles. <laughs> and Michael Ledeen did one of the breakout panels there. And his whole thing was and this is, I guess, related to the whole like PR pivot on like rhetoric about Iran. His whole thing was we should send money to Iranian oil workers so they can go on strike and then the regime will fall. I'm not really sure that he actually thought that was true, but I'm sure like the donors in the room probably believed him. I mean, or maybe he did. That would that would track with what you said, Isha. We should still send our money to Iranian oil workers because we've stolen oil <laughs> from them. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. He was, I don't know, like his scenario just sounds like, that, that's obviously absurd. I'm of two minds as to whether he believed it or not. I, I don't know. What do you think, Robbie? <laughs> I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know either. No, I, I didn't know that he said that specifically. But a lot of these neocons will say, you know, we'll do like trial balloon kinds of things to see if they'll take float. I mean, there's a good example of this. And I wish I knew the guy's name. You guys probably remember this incident. I think his name was actually Patrick Clausen. He tore a banner out of some Code Pink activist hand, like almost basically assaulted her a couple of years ago at some think tank. But a couple of years before that, he actually said to an audience of hundreds of people, and who knows how many people were watching over C-SPAN at the same time, that we should stage a Remember the Main style incident near Iranian waters to make it look like they had shot one of our ships down as an excuse to overthrow their government. Wow. So they're like the neocons, some of the crazier, <laughs> dumb, I don't know if you want to call them dumber ones. Because when I say dumber, I mean, there are people out there who will listen to this and be like, hey, that's a great idea. We should do something like crazy. But some of these crazier neocons will actually suggest false flag attacks which has kind of mostly become conspiracy lore by now. But where do these things come from? I mean, these, these neocons That's are wild. saying them at think tanks. So I think that a lot of this stuff is trial balloon kind of style stuff. But who really knows? I mean, they're such good liars that you, you really never know with them. I mean, even Michael Ledeen has said stuff about why we should eventually think about overthrowing Saudi Arabia's regime at a certain point. Because they may not be loyal enough to us in the long term. And oil reserves. I mean, so... Kind of makes sense how the neocons would eventually encircle them too 
at the end of all this. But yeah, yeah, they resent needing anybody else or working with other people. They want to just be able to take, uh, you know, without having to ask. Yep. Any last remarks? All I'll say about PNAC is people should go to the Wayback Machine on archive.org and actually load up the project for the new American countries. I'll attach it with this podcast. So just click on the show notes. So what's missing that's only on the Wayback version? It's not up online anymore. So everything is pretty much... Oh. There's been some websites like Information Clearinghouse that have republished their PDFs and stuff that you can download. But all of their original letters to presidents are only, you know, if you want to look at them in chronological order, you could find them on their website through the Wayback Machine. And one of their last letters, which is an interesting hint of what was to come, is they actually got a bunch of neoliberals and liberal interventionists, I think up to 100 of them, to co-sign a letter in 2005, I believe, talking about how Russia's war on terror and fighting terrorists in Russia was undermining civil liberties there and how it's a threat to the rest of the world that Russia's undermining their own democracy. Oh, Lord. So on this Amazing. <laughs> Madeleine Albright and different neoliberals you know, had signed on to this document in, as I think it's 2005. So check that out as well. Okay, one last question before we end. What are you going to do if Putin shuts out your power during this winter? <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably have to fire up my propane heater and go wild style. I'm already, I'm not a prepper type person, but I've been seriously, you know, California, which is where I'm right now, I believe is kind of on a downward slide into full on disaster zone and climate change is just one aspect of that. I mean, we have the drought. California is basically a tinderbox right now. The dryness is a huge problem. So as crazy as it sounds, I mean, I'll probably be seriously thinking about like what I can do to survive out here when everything kind of goes to shit. So I think it's going to happen uh, whether uh, Putin decides to <laughs> shut off our power or not. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming, Robbie. How do people find your show? You can find our show, Media Roots Radio, on many different podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud. We upload our segments to YouTube. We appreciate support via Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. Right now we're putting out about four episodes a month. And if people also want to check out my documentary film series about the project for the New American Century Neocons, it's called The Very Heavy Agenda. And uh, you can go to a averyheavyagenda.com um, to watch it on DVD or uh, stream it online. Absolutely, we will do. Okay, well, thank you so much, Robbie, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you for making it so quickly. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Historically. We'll see you again next week. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K... T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.